0: We are in the book of James, the end of chapter 4. I said when we started the book, every Sunday we would recap the theme so we, we keep the theme central. Otherwise, James becomes a book of, of random proverbial sayings and wisdom, bits of wisdom, disconnected from each other, and they're not disconnected. The thought behind all of this wisdom is that there is this wisdom of God that is competing with the wisdom of man, and there should be no competition. Or as they say, the the scholars say, it's the two ways... Hebrew tradition, that there's, there's two ways to do things. And if you think of the Sermon on the Mount where James has pulled a lot of his material, Jesus ends the Sermon on the Mount where he's, he's laying out the wisdom for his kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. And at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he says now there's two paths. There's a narrow path and a broad path. And many are on the broad path that leads to destruction, but there's a narrow path that leads to salvation. In fact, Jesus is, is the narrow gate. He's the, he's the way, the truth, and the life. And there's two prophets, he says. There's true prophets that call people to repentance and faith in God, and there's the false prophets, the wolves in sheep's clothing, who on the last day will say, Lord, Lord, Lord. Did we not prophesy in your name? And he says, away from me. I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. And there's two trees. And you will know a tree by its fruit, Jesus said. And two builders, a wise builder and a foolish builder, and two foundations, rock and sand. The rock being those who listen to the wisdom of God and act. On the wisdom of God. Jesus said those who hear these words of mine and do them will be likened to a wise builder. Whereas those who hear these words of mine and do not act on them. Let me stop there though. If you hear the words of Jesus and do not act on them, you're still acting though, right? You're still living life. So then, whose words are you acting upon? ultimately your own wisdom. You've now heard the wisdom of Christ and you've substituted your wisdom and put your wisdom in the higher place. This is the theme of the book. This is God's indictment on mankind. We substitute our wisdom for God's. Paul puts it a different way, but... In Romans 1, he says we exchange the truth of God for a lie. Three times he says we exchange. So we're exchangers. Like you get a gift that someone said, this is going to be a great gift for you, and you're looking for the gift receipt. I want to exchange it for something I really want. And God's given us the gift of His Son and the gift of His Word, and we're looking for the gift receipt. This is what James is communicating to us. And he hit the thematic peak in chapter 3, and then we got the sermonic peak last week where he calls us to repent from this, to weep over our sins. Because God is opposed to the proud, but here's the good news. That's the bad news, because everybody falls in that category. We're all prideful. But he gives grace To the humble. In fact, it says he gives a greater grace. Or the Apostle Paul writes in Romans where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. Praise God. That's the good news. God is willing to forgive and bring you into his family if you will humble yourself. Throughout the epistle, he's been giving us these examples of what man's wisdom looks like versus God's, and they're tests. They're tests, first and foremost, most importantly, to see, am I a follower of Christ? Am I a true believer? Secondly, once I, I have assurance of my salvation, am I growing in Christ? Am I listening to His word Am I daily repenting of my own wisdom and grabbing hold of God's wisdom and living His wisdom out? And now that He's called us to repentance and has told us that pride is the problem, pride is the problem, then He's going to give us three fruits of pride, or I want to say rotten fruit, I don't want there to be any mistake that these are good fruits. So he's going to give us three rotten fruits of pride. We'll hit two of the fruits today. We'll cover the third fruit next Sunday. Here's a list of the fruits, though. In James four eleven to twelve, he talks about slander. In James four thirteen to seventeen, presumptuous planning based on boastful arrogance. And the third rotten fruit is trusting in riches, in James 5, 1-6. So we'll cover the first two this morning. You might be thinking, are those the only three rotten fruits from pride? No, because pride is at the root of all sin. So then why these three? Is it because these were three particular sins that were in the church? Are these three worse than any other sin? We can't answer that question. Yet the more you think about these three, the more I think you will come to the conclusion I had this week when studying these three. Is that these these three are not only ubiquitous, meaning they're, they're everywhere in the in the church, and in the culture. But they're especially damaging to the body of Christ in our unity and our fellowship. Remember, what was the, the last sermon? The topic was, where do fights and quarrels and conflicts come from? So that's still the context here. So these particular fruits will destroy fellowship, in God's church and in his family. Pride causes conflict. So let's look at this first rotten fruit, slander. Actually, you know what? I want to read the section. It's important to read the scripture. Paul says, do not neglect the public reading of scripture. So James 4.11 11 Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you who judge your neighbor? Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. It's Kind of a confusing ending there, but we'll explain it. This first rotten fruit we're going to call slander. Pride produces slander. In the New American Standard that I just read, speak against is the term. I don't think that's strong enough. Or who am I to disagree with the Bible translators? But you have other translations that use the word slander instead of speak against. Where do they come up with speak against? It's it's a literal translation. The word in the Greek is kata laleo. It's a compound word, kata, the preposition for against or down. And laleo, speech against speech, speaking against or speaking down. And so they went with, speak against. And yet, in our common vernacular, you can speak against someone without sinning. In fact, sometimes we're called to speak against untruth. Sinfully, though, we speak against the person instead of the untruth. We need to learn to speak against the untruth, but lovingly and humbly correcting a brother. Notice that James has gone away from this adulteress's language, which he used to rebuke all of us. Remember, the adulteresses was a reference back to the Old Testament that God said, Israel's my bride, and she has been unfaithful to me. And so he likened Israel to adulteresses. So James is borrowing that language, and he says, We're like adulteresses. God's given us His word, and we settle for contrary wisdom. We're, we're adulterers, adulteresses. But now he goes back to the word brothers. So we're back to the family of God. Yes, slander is bad enough against people outside the family of God, but certainly inside the family of God there should be no slander. We may need to correct one another, that kind of speaking against, but slander is different. There's two words in Greek for to speak, two common words, I should say. There's others. lego, which... Anytime in your New Testament it says, and Jesus said, and somebody said this, and somebody said that, it's always lego. Laleo is more of the generic term for speech, referring more to the sound that comes out of your mouth. And so when we put that together with the word kata, it's just this speech that has no substance. You're, you're making accusations against someone that has no substance. Okay, this is different than making an accusation that has substance. We can certainly do that and do that sinfully. But we do need to do that, again, lovingly. And if you forget how to do that, go back to Matthew 18 or go back online and listen to the Matthew 18 sermon series. Slander, though, is making up lies with the purpose of trying to bring someone down or to ruin their reputation. Let's look at other places in the Bible where they used katalaleo. In 1 Peter 2.1, Peter says, Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Same verb, but the translators didn't put speaking against there. I read that translation from the NAS. How's that for a list? See, speaking against doesn't, doesn't fit with deceit, hypocrisy, and envy. Second Corinthians 12.20, Paul says, For I fear that perhaps when I come I may find you not as I wish. <laughs> Boy, could we not say that in lots of instances. And you may find me not as you wish. That perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. This is a serious charge. Look at at the other words that appear around slander. Again, the NAS translators did not put speak against here for the same word katalaleo. I don't know why they chose speak against when they got to this verb in James. So let's use the word slander instead of speak against. The definition of slander, according to Noah Webster, I love his dictionary because he was a biblically informed Christian and bases his definitions as much on the Bible as he possibly can. So a slander is a false tale or report maliciously uttered Intending to injure the reputation of another by lessening him in the esteem of his fellow citizens or by exposing him to impeachment and punishment or by impairing his means of living. You're ruining a reputation through false accusations. It's, it's devastating. Everything else in life we can get back. But once your reputation is gone, I can lose my riches and start from scratch and build, build it back up again. My house can burn down and we can build another one. But if your reputation's destroyed, you almost have to move to another town, especially in a little town like Tehachapi. But we're talking about God's family here. If your reputation's destroyed within the church, you're wearing the scarlet letter. My calling depends on my reputation being intact. Though the authority comes from God's Word, it's hard to listen to God's Word being preached if the reputation of the pastor is besmirched. And it wasn't any better in my previous profession as a teacher. All it takes is a careless accusation from a student in your career is ruined. There's teachers that <laughs> yeah. And they're young, and they they don't know better. They're mad at you, because you failed them on a math test, and they want to get even. And so you had to be careful, never to be alone in your room, with, with students. Our Sunday school teachers, we, we, We protect them by saying, never be alone in a room with the child. It's for the child's protection, first and foremost, but we want to protect the reputation of our teachers. So we teach in teams. God takes slander seriously, more serious than I was aware before I studied this week. This was a shocking statement to me from John MacArthur's commentary while other sins require a particular set of circumstances before they can be committed slander needs only a malicious tongue driven by hatred and I added in pride and then this the old testament denounces the sin of slandering God or men more often than it does any other sin I thought let me read that again, because that doesn't sound right. I can think of other sins that I think the Bible addresses more. but This is what he, he wrote. And I checked other commentators and went through the Bible using my, my Bible software, and sure enough, the Bible has much to say about slander. You have, each of us, the power to ruin a reputation, Not that God's reputation can be ruined, but we can throw mud on it, which may tempt people to stay away from God. So we must be careful about what we're saying about God and what we're saying about His people. And as Nathan pointed out the last time he preached, Facebook, social media you can slander so easily and so fast and to such a broad extent. In First Samuel 22, King David, he's approaching the Ammonites and he doesn't want to go to war with them. And he puts together a kind of a peace treaty party to go to talk to the Ammonites and brings gifts and greetings. And the leader of the Ammonites is Hanan. And Hanan's advisors say, David's a liar and a man that can't be trusted. And so Hanan decides to go to war and the Ammonites get slaughtered. And so the slander of David's words and his motives lead to the death of tens of thousands. You see how devastating the effects of slander can be. When we realize that Satan slandered God in the Garden of Eden, then we really begin to realize how serious slander is. In fact, Satan means accuser. He's a false accuser. He's a liar. He's the father of lies. Genesis 3.1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast. of the. F-. He's good at slandering. He's crafty. I want you to see here that slander rarely comes out explicitly. We know better than to do that. In fact, in our pride... We don't want to look bad, so we don't come right out and just say something horrible about someone else. We we slip it in; it it becomes implied. He goes to the woman. He says, "Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden?" Now, how far do you think he would have got with woman if he said, "You know that God you worship, he's a liar." No, no, he's not. He's good. He's given us this garden and he loves us and well, he comes in the back door. But he's calling God a liar here. He just slandered the name of God. Did God actually say that? But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. Now he's being more direct. God lied. You will not die. In fact, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And what is the implication? God is petty. He doesn't want you to be like him. He's hanging on to his power. He's a control freak. He doesn't want you to be happy. He's keeping good things from you. Slander, slander, slander. I tell you, I've been slandered before directly, and it really doesn't hurt. But when you are slandered because people call into question your motives, it's hard to recover from. Because you could even be doing good things, and they'll say, yeah, well, you know, he's just trying to get in good with you. I'm so thankful that ultimately only God judges my heart because people stink at it. I can't even judge my own heart correctly, Paul says, and I agree with them. My own pride whitewashes over my motives. Go ahead and judge my actions, and if you see sin, come to me humbly, lovingly, let me know. But don't come to me and say, I know your heart. Slanderers substitute themselves in place of the law. This is James's point. We're going to, as we go through these three rotten fruits, look for where man substitutes or exchanges. We have a law of God that tells us to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. So the slanderer is substituting his law above God's law. He says, do not speak against one another, brethren. Do not slander one another, brethren. He who speaks against or slanders a brother or judges. See, he's now conflating slandering with judging. You already decided what this person's guilty of and then the words came out of your mouth when you slandered. But before you even slander out of your mouth, what's going on in your heart? You've decided, you've judged, you've condemned. The slander is really the death penalty. Your... You're the law, you're the judge, you're the jury, and now the executioner. I'm going to kill your reputation. I'm pulling the switch. Whoever does that slanders the law. So if you slander your brother, you've slandered the law. Because the law says, do not slander your brother. Said, ah, forget the law, I'm going to go ahead and do this. You've just slandered the law because you've said that the law is wrong. You've decided in this case you're taking matters into your own hands and I'm going to get even. So you've in effect become a slanderer yourself when you slander somebody else. You've slandered the law, and you've judged the law, and you found it coming up wanting. He says, but if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. A doer of the law places himself below the law and obeys it. A judge of the law places himself above the law and decides which parts of the law I will obey and which parts I will ignore. There's a connection in the Old Testament between slander and this greatest commandment, the royal law that James calls it, the royal law or the law of Christ. Leviticus 19.16, do not go about spreading slander among your people. Do not do anything that endangers your neighbor's life. I am the Lord. Do not hate your brother in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor frankly so you will not share in his guilt. Look there. Right in the middle of do not slander, a reminder, because God knows our hearts. Any excuse to not have to confront our brothers. Any excuse to not have to do Matthew 18. Some people like confronting, most people don't. Most people don't. Because if I confront you in your sin, then What? I'm opening the door to being judged and confronted. So I'll just turn my back on your sin and you turn your back on mine and we'll call it grace. That's not grace. It's cowardice. So he says, Rebuke your neighbor frankly so you will not share in his guilt. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. You can't slander people and love your neighbor as yourself because you don't want to be slandered. It's terrible. I can stomach just about anything but false accusations. You'll get someone coming and say, hey, I heard you know something about you. I just needed to know if it's true. Like, that's a no-win situation right there. If you say, well, I don't even want to hear the accusation because the person who made it needs to come to me directly, then they're saying you're being evasive, so you must be guilty. If you listen to the accusation and try to defend yourself, then they say, well, they're really working hard to defend themselves, especially if the accusation is that you're unapproachable and won't, won't, won't take um, criticism. <laughs> say, well, now I'm stuck. I don't take this criticism, then I prove their point. So I say, well, who, who made the accusation? Oh, well, I can't tell you they wanted to remain anonymous. Oh, I hate that. So, yes, go back and re, uh, listen to the, the Matthew 18, Confronting One Another in Love and Humility sermon series. We need to get good at doing this. Some people immediately would say, isn't there a, 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 a verse that says, judge not, lest ye be judged? Yes, Jesus taught that. What does that mean? Because it's in the context later, just a few verses later, of get the log out of your own eye so you can see clearly to get the speck out of your brother's eye. You, you won't even know there's a speck there if you are not judging on some level. What Jesus is saying is don't go around judging other people's hearts and their motives. You don't get to decide who's in the kingdom and who's not in the kingdom. That's God's prerogative. By the way, gossip is different than slander. Some slander is gossip, but not all gossip is slander. All slander is false. So it may be a false accusation, but as soon as you start going around saying, hey, did you hear that so-and-so, blah, 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 you are now gossiping, and you're spreading the slander. However, if it's a true accusation against someone, and instead of going to talk to them about it directly, and you say, wow, did you hear about so-and-so, you're spreading truth, but if your intent is to, to bring down their reputation or just be excited to hear about someone else's sin, which is really ugly, you are now gossiping. I also want you to understand that it would be very easy for us in our pride when somebody comes to us, a la Matthew 18, with love and humility, to point out a sin for us to say, slanderer! We know this is an ugly word, and we've now just preached that God hates slander, so an easy way to get out of repentance is to just call everybody a slanderer who has a beef with you. Knowing that it is so difficult to confront one another in love, you need to extend grace both when you're doing the confronting and when you're being confronted. We need to create a family here in the body of Christ where we can transparently and authentically help one another with our blind spots because we all have them. Ultimately, slanderers substitute themselves in the place of God. James four twelve. There is only one lawgiver and judge ultimately. The one who is able to save and to destroy. I love that he puts save and to destroy, because a slanderer just wants to destroy. They're not interested in saving or helping people. Those who lovingly confront a brother or sister in sin one-on-one, what is their intent and motive, according to Matthew 18? Restoration, to save. Slanderers just want to destroy reputations and destroy livelihoods. You know, at the end of a political campaign, when, when when the polls are close... Out comes the slander. And there doesn't seem to be any any punishment for it. We're just so used to it. Slanderers usurp the place of God by becoming, again, their own law, their own judge, their own jury, and their own executioner. And so James says, but who are you who judge your neighbor? Beloved, I want you to think about this more intimately in your marriages, in your your family relationships, in your close relationships, that our sin nature tempts us to become the lawgiver and the judge. And again, when, when you claim in your heart to know another person's motives. It's just devastating to relationships. Devastating. You start to be suspicious of everybody's motives, and when they do something good, it's done because they're trying to manipulate you. When they're doing something bad, it's done because they hate you and they're trying to make your life miserable. No, I just forgot that we had, you know, something tonight at 5.30. I wasn't late to... We do this to each other, right? And so when you start thinking about slander, and, you know, I'm not going to go around and slander people. I'm not going to go around and level false accusations. I know not to do that. It's more subtle than you think. I mean, the reason I don't stand up and slander people should be because I fear and love God, and I love other people. But sometimes the thing that's keeping us from slandering on Facebook or whatever is we're afraid of looking ugly to the world. So we're not going to do that, so we'll find another sneaky way to get the slander in. I'll give so and so the silent treatment. I haven't said a word. See, I can't be a slanderer. Why are you giving them the silent treatment? Because they deserve to be punished. Why? Because I know what's going on in their heart. So you can slander silently. Just, beloved, we have to watch our hearts. What am I accusing people of? Did I go to them? Did I talk to them? Let them explain what's going on in their heart? Give everybody the benefit of the doubt. Love chooses to believe the best about one another's motives, especially in the body of Christ. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go the extra mile with everybody, and I would hope you'd go the extra mile with me before you decide. We know what was going on in his heart. The second rotten fruit is this presumptuous planning. presumptuous planning. And he gives kind of this nondescript, hey, we're going to go to the city, we're going to stay there a year, we're going to turn a profit. What, what, what's sinful about that? That kind of just sounds like everybody's life. <laughs> Uh-oh, we're in trouble here. If this is on the list of ugly fruits that come from pride, I mean, that sounds like my life right there. I, I make plans and I assume they're going to work out. Because I'm really good at making plans and I'm really good at executing the plan. I'm a self made man, I'm self sufficient. In order, here's the problems number one, it presumes we can make whatever plans we please, it leaves God completely out of the picture. I will make my plans today. I will lay down my plans. I didn't consult God. I sang about him owning my life, and then I got out in the car and didn't even ask him what he wanted me to do with this life. That's the problem. Secondly, it presumes that these great plans we lay down, we will achieve them, and then we'll take the credit. We're that prideful, boastful, arrogant that we think we're sovereign. That nothing can foil our plans. Thirdly, it presumes we are going to live as long as we want. It takes no consideration that our life is but a vapor and that God has numbered our days. So, yeah, I'll get around to evangelism and I'll get around to whatever, but I've got plenty of time to go into the city and make some money. I think that's just that illustration James is using is just for the the common living of life apart from the knowledge of God. So we say we know God but we live like practical atheists. And little by little, day after day, before you know it, your life isn't much different than an unbeliever. Oh, sure, you're not participating in the gross, obvious sins. But they go to work, you go to work. They make money, you make money. They spend their money on vacations and stuff, you spend your money on vacations and stuff. What's the difference? So people say, why Christianity? You know, my life's no different than yours, and I have two extra hours on Sunday and a little extra money in my wallet. You're always complaining about how you don't have enough money, Christian. I got a solution for you. Live the same life you're living now and stop going to church. Stop giving money. This is what James is talking about here. Boasters substitute autonomy in the place of dependence on God. They replace dependence on God with self-sufficiency. I will go and do this. My life is mine. We're Americans. We get to decide and choose. I'll live my life the way I want to live it. Now, when the government's telling you how to live it, they have no right to do that. But when God tells you how you ought to live the life that he purchased with his son's own blood, we ought to listen. Come now, you who say... This is a rhetorical device, kind of like a, oh, please, people, come now. Wake up. I know you've said this. Come now, you who say... He's still talking to the church. Today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there engage in business and make a profit. Yet You do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Remember? Remember who our God is? Remember who we are? It's easy to forget. Especially if God has gifted you with... With an extra measure of talents where you have the Midas touch, things tend to go well. You achieve your goals, you do well. And as you do well, people put you in positions of more and more authority because you get the job done. And before you know it, it's all me and it's not God. If it gets really hard, I'll pray. But most of, if most of your life you've got handled and you don't need God, then you're not living your life correctly. There's two sides of this coin, though. There always is, are, two sides. We understand the arrogant king of the world. I'm sovereign. I'll go to the city, and I'll go make a fortune. How do you know? Because I always do. Well, it's true, but how do you know this time? I will. I'm sovereign. We understand that side. But there's another side, and that's the anxiety-filled, more puppet-master side of the coin. God's not big enough to handle this, so I'm going to have to control the situation. Both are boasting on their own autonomy. One one is ugly and makes us go, oh, but the other brings... Out pity in us, no. But they're both need to be repented of. The solution is the same to both: humility. God is sovereign. I can trust Him. I can make my plans, but I'm going to hold on to them loosely. Are bad things going to happen tomorrow? Maybe, but nothing that God hasn't ordained. And he has a purpose in it. He's a good God. So he gives us a humble way to make plans. James 4.15 Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. And he doesn't get specific. It's very nondescript. If it's the Lord's will, I'll wake up tomorrow. He'll have given me another day. And I don't even know if it's the whole day. He could call me home right after breakfast. I don't know. My grandfather choked on a piece of food at a buffet in Vegas. Healthy as a healthy, healthy. Lots of plans. He was a planner too five-year plan, ten-year plan, you know. When they'd go on a vacation, he'd plan for weeks and, you know, the, the itinerary and where they're going to go and where, where we're going to gas up. And That wasn't in the plans, choking on a piece of ham or whatever at the buffet. It was his day to go home. He was ready. He was right with the Lord. But I know it wasn't in his plan that day. Here's some food for thought, how to humbly make plans, because God does want us to make plans. Are your plans aligned with God's revealed plans in the Bible? If if they're contradictory to His revealed plans, they're not God's plans. If you're planning on sinning this afternoon, those are not God's plans for you. But it's more than that. It's more than just the things we shouldn't do. There's things we should do. And so our plans, first and foremost, better be aligned with God's Word. And then you won't know unless you know God's Word and you're saturated in God's Word. Have you sought wise Christian counsel? If wise Christians are like, you're going to do what? Maybe you should think about other plans. Unless those plans are, I'm going to go reach an unreached people group somewhere where they're hostile to Christians, and everyone who loves you is like, "You're going to do what?" Because God has a heart for unreached people group, and we will go, and they are His plans, and He'll protect us. And you'll be home here, and you could get in a car accident and die. It's we can't shield ourselves from. From harm. We can make wiser decisions and not intentionally put ourselves foolishly in harm's way, but we cannot count our own days. God's already numbered them. Have you confessed your utter dependence on God and resolved to be content with the resources He provides and the outcome He ordains? God, I realize Jesus said that He is the vine and I am the branch, and apart from Him, I can do nothing. Nothing of consequence, nothing that matters eternally. Oh, sure, I can accomplish a lot during the day. But I can't accomplish anything of eternal consequence without Jesus. And so if that is the case, then I am completely dependent on you and your grace and your power and whatever you provide me with in order to accomplish your goals for my life. That is enough, as Paul said in Philippians 4. Whether I have a lot or a little, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What are the all things? The things that God has ordained for you to accomplish in His name. Not the things that I want to accomplish. And then I say, God, where's the resources? Where's the resources? Bless my mess, as we say. I'm also going to be confident with the outcome He ordains I'm excited, I'm going to go out witnessing. And I didn't get a single comfort. Well, that, ah, I'm not doing that anymore. No, you planted seeds, you were faithful, you trust God for the harvest. Are your plans about the glory of God or your own glory? This is really where the rubber meets the road. Because you could have some really good biblical plans that are aligned with God's word, They sound great on paper, they're bold, they're courageous, they're bathed in prayer, but in your heart of hearts you realize it's really about me looking like a good Christian in front of everyone else. It doesn't mean don't do the plans, it means repent of that attitude and wait patiently on the Lord. Careful, says Daniel Doriani, we can hide our pride by saying, Lord willing. Planning is entirely proper as long as we confess that God is sovereign and that we are frail, ignorant, and dependent on Him. The phrase, Lord willing, is no magical incantation. It does not guarantee our humility if you just go around saying, well, Lord willing, Lord willing, Lord willing. But it does remind us that our plans, even our lives, are as frail as the mist. So it is proper to use the term Lord willing, or if the Lord wills, if in your heart you understand and believe what you're saying when you say Lord willing. Too often I hear people use the phrase Lord willing as kind of an out in case they fail. Or as kind of a, a false humility. Well, I'm going to accomplish these great things for God. Well, Lord willing. On the other side, though, Doriani says, be careful because pride can also use God's sovereignty as an excuse not to plan. We're so complicated in our sin. You've got to really look deeply into your heart. He says, indeed, to refuse to plan may be a sign of sloth. These are the people who say, Well, if God wants that to happen, then he'll make it happen. I'm just going to go about my day. And if God wants me to do that, he'll just kind of push me into that. He says it's easier to drift along with adequate food and funds, doing what others want, taking whatever comes along, hardly troubling over the future as long as we have enough food and fun. But the Lord expects us to do more than take whatever pleasures each day affords. We do need to plan. But you plan with humility. Boasters substitute arrogance in place of God's glory. James four sixteen. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Again, when God is removed from view, we are tempted to so many horrible things that, like we were saying, can really tear apart the body of Christ. If your plans replace God's plans, then you're going to get upset at anybody who gets in the way of your plans. Conflict now. Division in the body of Christ. But when we're all committed to glorifying God, reaching the lost with the gospel, and making disciples, there's a lot of room for humble conversations on how we are going to go about making disciples and how we're going to go about reaching the lost. Lots of different ways to do that, but that is the command to Christ's church. And when people start wanting to use church funds for country club living, then we're going to have problems. But if we're all committed to the glory of God through the proclamation of His Word... And the gospel and reaching the lost and making disciples, then there will be unity. If God's glory is on the line and not my own personal glory, then I can handle criticism. If I've got an idea and somebody says they have a better idea, hey, if it glorifies God better than my idea, so be it. God's will be done. But if you become sovereign God of your own universe, of your own world, of your own house, and of the church, you're going to start acting like you are sovereign God. It has to go my way. It has to go according to my plans. Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. Where does this line come from? It's not that complicated. He's saying that once you get this mindset that you're sovereign God, you will... Disregard the things you know are right to do as revealed in god 's word, because you will become convinced that your agenda is more important right now yes I, I know I, I know God says to do that, but right now this is more important you will you will even justify your own sin because of this arrogance. It won't look like sin to you. It'll look like a really good plan. We've got to get with the program, people. In closing, remember, let's hearken back to what James says is the solution. Remember that our sovereign God—he has the plan, He has the promises, He has the power to actually keep those promises and keep that plan on track. The world is filled with with plans. You can go to all these seminars. They always have these free "quote unquote" seminars on how to be a better planner or how to be make more money. Or, Ten Steps to a Better Life, and Five Steps to a Better Marriage, and Six Steps to Seven Ways to Win Friends and Influence People. Remember that book? The biggest section in the bookstore is the self-help section. The world is filled with these step programs for a better life. God has a step program for eternal life, and it's one step. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and ye shall be saved. Humble yourself. Step one. Step two. Humble yourself. Step three. We could be here a long time. You get the picture. This whole program here is all about humbling yourself. Submit, therefore, to God. Step one. Submit to God. You've placed yourself above God. Submit. Sub. Underneath. Submarine. Put yourself under God. Resist the devil. That's humbling yourself. The devil wants you to take your pride and compete with God. I am not going to do that, Satan. I am going to submit to God and his word. But did God really say, yes, he did? Well, it's hard to understand. No, it's not. It's quite clear. I just don't like doing it. He'll flee from me because that's all the accuser has is slander. If you're not going to listen to the slander, then Satan's got nothing. No power over you. Draw near to God. Oh, that sounds so great. I want to draw near to Him. How do I do that? Humble yourself, because God opposes the proud. You can't draw near to God in pride. Humble yourself. Obey His Word. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts. Well, how do I do that? Repent of the deeds, cleanse your hands that you wanted to do that aren't God's deeds for his people. Purify your hearts, cleanse your motives. You double minded, stop being double minded. Be singular minded, focused on Christ. We have the mind of Christ here. You don't need your own wisdom. It's inferior, it's not sufficient, it's inadequate at best. At worst, our own wisdom is destructive. Be miserable and mourn. Ooh, I don't want any step program where I have to be miserable and mourn, but he's saying you have to be sorrowful over this sin nature and the effects of our sin nature. Be, mourn over it. Weep over it. And then the, the last step comes full circle. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and, here's the good news, He will exalt you. He will exalt you. He'll make you a son or daughter of the Most High and give you all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places and you'll be co-heirs with Christ and you'll have God for all eternity, eternal life. All things you cannot get through slander and self-sufficiency. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, are we slanderers? Are we boastfully arrogant, self-sufficient people? Is this true what you've said of us? You do not lie. But why would you love such people? I couldn't. And yet You do love us. Thank You for Jesus. Thank You for Your love poured out on the cross for people like us. And thank You for taking that coal off the altar and touching our lips. So instead of slander, we praise Your name and we speak truth. And instead of sinful, self-sufficient dependence We can now confess we are utterly helpless and hopeless without you, but now we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. May we think and live that way this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You're dismissed.